0: Welcome to the Not Old Better Show Smithsonian Associates interview for Women's History Initiative on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelsang, and we have an excellent program today about women's history, power, and Edith Wilson, wife of President Woodrow Wilson. Our returning guest is Smithsonian Associate, journalist, and author Rebecca Boggs-Roberts, who has written the new book, Untold Power, The Fascinating Rise, and Complex Legacy of First Lady Edith Wilson. I'll introduce Rebecca Boggs-Roberts in just a moment, but quickly, if you missed any shows recently, last week was our 699th episode. I spoke with number one New York Times bestselling author Mark Graney about his new book, Part of the Gray Man series, titled Burner, already a bestseller. Two weeks ago, I spoke with author and journalist Philip Bump about his new book, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom, and the future of power in America. Wonderful subjects. For our Not Old Better Show audience here on radio and podcast, if you miss those shows along with any others, you can go back and check them out along with my entire back catalog of shows, all free for you there on our website at notold-better.com. Our guest today is Smithsonian Associate Author and Journalist Rebecca Boggs-Roberts, our audience has come to love Rebecca Boggs-Roberts and all that she does. Rebecca Boggs-Roberts will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up, so please check out the details of her Zoom presentation in our show notes today. But we have Rebecca Boggs-Roberts today. The title of Rebecca Boggs-Roberts' presentation is Edith Wilson, the first unelected woman president. While this nation has yet to elect its first woman president, and though history has downplayed her role, just over a century ago, a woman became the first woman acting president in the United States. In fact, she was born in 1872 and her name was Edith Bowling Galt Wilson. She climbed her way out of Appalachian poverty and into the highest echelons of American power and in 1919 effectively acted as the first woman president of the United States before women could even vote nationwide when her husband, Woodrow Wilson, was incapacitated. Beautiful, brilliant, charismatic, catty, and calculating. This is going to be a fun interview. You guys are going to love this. Edith Wilson was a complicated figure whose personal quest for influence reshaped the position of First Lady into one of political prominence forever. And still nobody understands, truly, who she was. You'll enjoy our conversation today with Rebecca Boggs-Roberts. So please join me in welcoming back to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series for Women's History Initiative on radio and podcast, Smithsonian Associate, Rebecca Boggs-Roberts. Rebecca Boggs-Roberts, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you, Paul.
0: It's so great to talk to you always. Uh, Of course, you are a popular returning guest here on the program. You're going to be presenting once again at Smithsonian Associates. You've written this wonderful new book, Untold Power, The Fascinating Rise and Complex Legacy of First Lady Edith Wilson. I'm looking forward to getting into that subject. Absolutely. But let's start By just asking, what are you going to say to the Smithsonian Associates when you uh, join there coming up on uh, March 14th? And so what are you going to say during your presentation? And then uh, how will you use Zoom to engage our audience?
1: So I think that I'm discovering that people don't have a tremendous base of knowledge about First Lady Edith Wilson. I think if they know anything <laughs> about her, they know that when Woodrow Wilson had a stroke in 1919, she stepped in as the executive. But that is such a small sliver of her life. And if you are surprised that that was the action she took, then you really weren't paying attention to Edith Wilson. She telegraphed over and over again that she was the kind of person who would do something like that. <laughs> and so I am eager to introduce this complex Fascinating, often hilarious, delightful, <laughs> difficult woman to the Smithsonian Associates audience. The nice thing about that audience is everyone is so engaged and so smart that even if it's a topic they don't come to the program with a wealth of knowledge about, they ask such insightful questions. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that. And in terms of Zoom, I think, you know, we're all learning to get better at it. We're all learning to. Um, go to questions earlier because that's kind of the interactive element of it. Um, But also the images are so great from uh, the early part of the 20th century, you know, throughout all of Edith's life, but certainly the time that she was first lady. And you you can get a little bit more up close and personal with them, I think, when you're looking at them on your laptop screen as opposed to them being projected at the back of an auditorium. So there are some assets to being able to um focus on those visuals in a way that that pulls you into her time a little bit more intimately.
0: Well, you know, I'll I'll have to admit right here at the top that um I was one of those that was not paying attention. Just gonna <laughs> be right up front with you. <laughs> this woman, you must have had a great time writing this book because um I am no author. You are the author of uh, numerous books. This one must have been just plain fun for you. Uh, let's let's start there. Did you just enjoy getting to know her? And because I, in my research in anticipation of our conversation, I thoroughly enjoyed. I've, I've i le- I need to let you know I pre ordered the book. Looking forward to reading it. Just becoming more familiar with her was just a real. Uh, I, I just became more and more curious.
1: Right. I mean, she's a she's a massive contradictions. Our Edith, but she's also just a delight. And I think
0: uh,
1: this is my first biography and I hope not my last. But one thing I definitely learned is you better be engaged with your subject as a biographer because you live with her for a couple of years. And if you find her tedious or evil or uh, destructive in some way, uh, you're just not going to get through. You know, writing is is solitary and lonesome enough. If the only person keeping you company is the subject of your biography and and you don't respect them, then um, you know you're you're done before you even begin. Yeah. Uh, so you're absolutely right. I had fun with it. She is an endlessly fascinating character to me. The other sources, everyone in the Wilson administration seems to have written a memoir, and several of them were very frank and almost catty, and so that was delightful. Um, I managed to get into the treasure trove of gossip columns, the town wow. topics gossip columns, even though I was largely doing my research during the pandemic, and you're supposed to go in person to the New York Public Library to get access to those Um I had a, a friend slash research assistant who worked a little magic to um, help me get digital access to those. and they you know it's it's such a window in real time into what is going on in a certain segment of society. So that was great fun.
0: I'm excited to to read further this is a woman who is complex is fascinating everything that you have said why don't you why don't you tell us just briefly about edith wilson's upbringing and her her early years before meeting president wilson because this was a, an amazing story of this rise of this woman from kind of parts unknown
1: yeah i mean i feel like if this were the story of a man we'd all be heralding her up by her bootstraps american dreamness but because She was a woman starting in the 19th century into the early 20th century. And a lot of what she achieved was through the men she married. Um, People think of her as a plus one, which is really not fair. Every, you know, self-made man has relied on connections and family. So um, anyway, she was born in 1872 in Wythville, Virginia, which is in that little southwest corner of Virginia Closer to North Carolina and and Tennessee um, than sort of the plantation James River uh, part of Virginia, which is where her family was originally from for generations. And then, like a lot of slave-owning plantation owners um, after the Civil War, when they had to pay their labor, they found that owning plantations was impossible. And uh, they moved to very cramped quarters, these funny little rooms over some storefronts in Withville, Virginia. And it was Edith and her many siblings and both her grandmothers and various aunts and uncles and some other cousins and hangers-on and law students at various times. So it was, they were packed in there, the bowlings. Um And It was Reconstruction-era Virginia. She was absolutely reared on these kind of lost cause myths of of who her family had been and who they could have been. They were directly descended from Pocahontas, something they took very seriously. Um, And she had two grandmothers um, who helped raise her, who had very um, uh, counterproductive influences on her. And without wanting to do too much psychoanalysis, you know, 150 years later, I really think those grandmothers and their influence explain a lot of Edith's contradictions. So her her mother's mother and her mother herself were big proponents of that you know, Victorian cult of true womanhood, where women were meant to be pious and submissive and excellent in the domestic arts, but not have ambition beyond the home. And her grandmother, Bowling, her father's mother, who by all accounts was absolutely terrifying really sort of picked Edith out of this bunch of grandchildren and told her that she was smart and she was capable and she was meant for better things. And so throughout her life, Edith, who who really was very confident and very uh, comfortable with herself and great at putting other people at ease and um, really by nature veered more towards the lessons of the grandmother telling her that she could aim high and and achieve great things, but she was in a world where she was supposed to cloak all of that in this sort of hyper feminine, actually, I'm just doing it to help a man stuff. And so, you know, you find her private actions in stark contrast to her public statements and her public persona over and over and over again.
0: One of those, one of the, the big contradictions that I found that, again, I I really didn't know much about this. I, I knew a little bit about President Wilson's 19th Amendment um, support, but I I certainly didn't understand Edith Wilson's being so squarely against women's suffrage. You've written several books about the Nineteenth Amendment, the women's voting rights, um, women's civic participation. It, do do you think Edith was secretly supporting this all the all the while and and just whispering in President Wilson's ear? I mean how how does how do we kind of understand her position on the one hand, and yet President Wilson's? On the other, and knowing that she is a very persuasive person.
1: Yeah, that's so. That's actually how I first got interested in Edith when I was giving talks mm-hmm. about the Nineteenth Amendment around the centennial. People would ask me that a fair amount. That say, did he finally change his mind about federal suffrage because she told him to? Mm-hmm. And so I started looking into her to answer that question better. And the truth is, absolutely not. She was anti suffrage <laughs> all the way, and huh. that I find amazing because. She not only was this confident, politically involved woman, she was a small business owner. She was very prominent here in Washington. She inherited her first husband's business, which was sort of the the Tiffany of Washington, Galton Brother Jewelers. Um, She was the first woman in Washington to have a driver's license. She led this very um, independent, uh, sort of socially prominent, Uh, beholden to no one life in a way that was really, really rare for women because she had no children and she was a widow, so she didn't need a chaperone and she had means and she had nobody telling her what to do. And why wouldn't someone like that who enjoyed those privileges in a lot of other ways want to exercise her full rights as a citizen? And, um, you know, in later years, she was very annoyed with the suffragists and their tactics. She thought they were sort of tacky and not nice, but they also, the National Women's Party picketers in front of the White House were very directly criticizing her husband and she really didn't like that. Um, so some of it was just finding them distasteful, but if she had wanted social coverage for being a suffragist, she could have it. There were plenty of very fancy blue-blooded women who were part of the cause. And I she never said why. Um, I think that on some very basic level, she shared a view that a lot of women at the time shared. A lot of anti-suffragists were women. And it was this notion that there just was something inappropriate about being out in the public sphere that it was unfeminine that it was undermining the importance of the domestic sphere and you know that is deeply ironic for a woman who ultimately basically acted as the chief executive of the nation for a few months (laughs) but she did that so completely in secret (laughs) right i mean so she she managed to maintain this kind of public facade that once again in complete contradiction to her private actions
0: Hi, it's Paul. Do you love entertaining, informative, eclectic, insightful programs about culture, health, science, life, and everything Smithsonian? As part of our Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, we're introducing you to the new Smithsonian Associates streaming series. Smithsonian, a nonprofit organization, is excited to present this new aspect of their 55 years as the world's largest museum-based educational program. Join us from the comfort of your home as we periodically interview Smithsonian Associate Guest Speakers. Our audience here on radio and podcast can explore our website for more information, links, and details at notold-better.com. Thanks, everybody. We are with Rebecca Boggs-Roberts. Rebecca Boggs-Roberts has been a guest previously on the program. Rebecca Boggs-Roberts will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up Tuesday, March 14th. We'll have links so that our audience can find out more about Rebecca's upcoming presentation as well as her new book, Untold Power, The Fascinating Rise and Complex Legacy of First Lady Edith Wilson. The book, Rebecca, is already getting just rave reviews. I found this from Elaine Weiss, who's author of The Woman's Hour, The Great Fight to Win the Vote. She says, in Untold Power, Rebecca Boggs-Roberts points a vivid and riveting portrait of Edith Bowling Galt Wilson in all her prickly, contradictory splendor. Told with gusto, historical care, wry humor, and crisp insight, Rebecca Boggs-Roberts leads us on a spirited expedition in search of Edith bolling Galt Wilson, who... Dared to Become the Most Dangerous Thing, a Woman Wielding Power. <laughs> that was a great, just a great comment and wonderful review of this book. I, as I say, I've pre-ordered it. I'm looking forward to it. We're going to have links so that our audience can do the same. But let's let's talk about this uh, this role that she played because she, as you say, she, she felt strongly about having her full rights as a citizen, yet no one elected edith wilson to anything and she held great power during wilson's incapacitation after suffering a stroke are there other contradictions here that you could tell us did she have good intentions in that role was she just purely ambitious and cunning or all of that
1: i mean i think there's a little truth in all of those stock characters Mm -hmm. right she Mm -hmm. she wanted everyone to think that she was just being the best Mrs. Woodrow Wilson she could be and that everything she did was to serve his priorities and sort of nation be damned, right, she was just helping him recover and she was told by medical experts that the best way to help him recover was to keep him quiet and unstressed, but to not let him quit because ratifying the Treaty of Versailles and saving the League of Nations was all he had to live for. So she, in her own terms, walks out this very convoluted rationalization of her actions, that she was told if he did everything the president was elected to do, he'd die. If he quit, he'd die. If he died, world peace would never be achieved because the League of Nations wouldn't happen. So the stakes were that high. And so it was her role to keep him in the presidency until he was recovered enough to take it himself. That is bananas, right? That is not (laughs) anything that the first lady should be doing. But that was her rationalization. She was protecting him. Some people thought she was a puppet of other people in the administration who took advantage of her being this you know, naive rube from Appalachia and, and pulled her strings. That's really mm-hmm. not fair. She might have um, been swayed by some people that were close to the president, but she knew her own mind and always did. And then there are some people who cast her as this kind of lady Macbeth character who who seized control for her own glorification um, when she had the chance that's also not a hundred percent fair. She definitely you know was not shy, so I don't want to uh, pretend that this was all the wifely duties she characterized it as, but I don't think she really did anything differently than he would have, even though her actions were completely inappropriate and unconstitutional, and as you say, no one elected either to anything, um, she she knew his political priorities well enough that in the time that she held the reins, she didn't do anything profoundly differently than what he would have done. I think the real effect, um, where you really see the difference, is that she she not only lied to you know, Congress and the press and the American people and the cabinet and the vice president, she actually lied to the president himself. So he never knew how sick he was. And he was in such an echo chamber of people telling him he was wonderful and smart and fine and that the whole nation was still behind him and his priorities, that he, he never, even when he was well enough to make some decisions for himself, he had lost all perspective and he's, his political instincts were completely undermined by the fact that he didn't know what was going on. Um, and so it's it's a complex legacy. I mean, you can, on the face of it, say it was wrong, it was the wrong decision. Did it change history? I don't know. You know, I did, did things happen differently? You could certainly make an argument that the fact that Wilson, you know, dragged his feet on saying he wouldn't run for a third term in 1920, which was preposterous. There was no way he could survive a campaign, but that let, that didn't allow a successor to come to the fore and really stake a good campaign. Maybe that's one of the reasons that Harding won in a landslide in 1920. You know, you can play those what ifs with history for a long time.
0: You know, we hear this term today, gatekeeper, and, um, I guess that that came to mind as as I was doing this, you know, kind of preparing for our conversation today in regards to Edith, uh, that perhaps she she might have even ignored some items, you know, during this period. Would you agree?
1: Oh, no question. Yeah. I mean, the the word she used was steward, Mm -hmm. which is similar to gatekeeper. When her papers were donated to the Library of Congress, um, several of them were unopened unopened letters from that era. Wow. So there are definitely things she ignored. There are There is legislation that that went into effect without the president's signature just by virtue of hitting a, t- a time deadline without any action from the executive branch. So there's no question that there's stuff that she let go, um, both because she was overwhelmed and because he was so single-mindedly fixated on the Treaty of Versailles and the League of Nations that... Um, you know, there was a lot going on in America at the end of 1919, 1920. There was a massive red scare. There was, you know, uh, abuse of power by um, the Attorney General Palmer. There was uh, labor unrest. There was lots of other things to pay attention to. And uh, to the degree that the executive branch was called in for any of that, Edith ignored it largely. Um, They were really, really focused on, on the treaty.
0: Yeah, and here was a woman who, Was really almost part of that. I mean, she was she was in the group who were to arrive in France to take part in the peace negotiations. She was there. She was in the room, as they say.
1: She was in the room, which is it would be unusual now. It was, uh-huh. <laughs> it was unimaginable in 1918. It was unimaginable for yeah. him to do it. I mean, that was, that was something that really surprised me. It was no sitting president had left the country for more than a brief, you know, Teddy Roosevelt checking on the Panama Canal kind of thing. No one had taken an extended foreign trip. And Woodrow and Edith Wilson went to Paris for the better part of six months They were gone a really long time. And because where he went, she went, that was true from the very beginning, when he was doing all the sort of ceremonial side of ending the war, which is extensive, it's staying at Buckingham Palace and it's all kinds of state visits and it's accepting all kinds of awards, she was right there with him and accepted things on his behalf and often smoothed ruffled feathers and you know he was pretty shy and awkward and he didn't like being seen as um not being prepared so if he was in a situation where he wasn't completely comfortable he wouldn't ask the right questions she didn't care she was she had enough confidence for both of them so she'd barrel her way on into a situation and ask what she needed to know and use her terrible french and it was fine (laughs) um And now, you know, we think of that kind of public diplomacy role of the First Lady as a Mm -hmm, given. It's mm -hmm. a great role for the First Lady, but Edith invented it in a lot of ways.
0: And has impacted First Ladies ever since.
1: No question. I mean, I think, you know, obviously, as the 20th century wore on, Eleanor Roosevelt then brought in a, another sort of sea change in introducing the idea that a first lady should have a cause and that she had a voice separate from her husband. And, you know, that is still, um, Edith, Eleanor Roosevelt still was a little edgier than contemporary first ladies in that score. But if you compare Edith to 19th century first ladies, um, she really did change the role in ways that we continue to see a hundred years later.
0: Amazing. Just a fascinating character. Uh, Rebecca, final question for you. I know, I know you're very busy and we sure appreciate your time. So we've kind of talked about the one-sidedness of perhaps Edith and her um, maybe even manipulation of of the president. But this was a love affair, certainly on Wilson's part. And you actually came across letters that were written in the courtship. And so maybe tell us, leave us a little bit with just the 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 relationship part of this uh, between president wilson and edith wilson.
1: Yeah, the letters are amazing. They're amazing. And I have to say <laughs> as someone who has been a historian of suffrage, I do not have a lot of nice things to say about Woodrow Wilson. These letters <laughs> humanized him in a way that I was almost reluctant to admit. So, his first wife died during his first term in office. He met Edith only a months later and he fell hard and fast and from the very beginning he is writing these gushy almost racy letters and you don't think of you know professorial Woodrow Wilson as having this romantic streak but boy did he and he is writing these mash notes and from the beginning, she's writing back saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to kiss my <laughs> eyelids. That's lovely. What do you think of <laughs> William Jennings Bryan? Do you think he's going to quit the administration? Who do you think is going to replace him? So wow. even when she had no role, she is asking to be involved. And he he finally caught on that flirting with her by policy analysis was a much more effective tool. So he started including <laughs> tons of somewhat indiscreet details about what was going on in the war in Europe and within his own cabinet, along with the love letters it include these giant folders full of documents so that she could, he taught her his own personal cipher so that um, she could know what he knew. Uh, so the the courtship letters are such a peek into who they were as human beings, because, you know, they didn't expect me to be reading their mail 100 years later, they weren't (laughs) curating their sort of public (laughs) persona in those letters. So it really does give you a peek about the real human behind the myth making.
0: Rebecca Boggs-Roberts has been our guest today. Rebecca will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up. We'll have links in the show notes so that you can find out more information about Rebecca and her new book, Untold Power, The Fascinating Rise, and Complex Legacy of First Lady Edith Wilson. Rebecca, thanks. It's always so great to talk to you. You're just always doing so many cool things. and um I just enjoy our time together. But this book, I, I tell you, you really have got me excited. I know our audience will be as well. So I can't, I can't uh, just emphasize this enough to everybody. Check out this book and check out Rebecca as she is at Smithsonian Associates coming up. Thanks, Rebecca. Great to talk to you. Have a great rest of your day.
1: Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you for always being so enthusiastic and supportive of our work.
0: <laughs> yeah, always, always, always. You do great stuff. My thanks to author and journalist, Smithsonian Associate Rebecca Boggs-Roberts and her new book, Untold Power, The Fascinating Rise and Complex Legacy of First Lady Edith Wilson. Rebecca Boggs-Roberts will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up, so please check out our show notes today for more details about Rebecca Boggs-Roberts at Smithsonian Associates. My thanks always to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. My thanks to you, My wonderful, not old, better show audience here on radio and podcast, please be well and be safe, which I'm mentioning in every show because I want to bring attention to the issue of assault rifles, which aren't safe in anyone's hands but the military and law enforcement. Assault rifles are killing our children and grandchildren in the very places they learn, schools. Please, let's work together to eliminate assault rifles, and let's do better. Let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast Smithsonian Associates interview series Thanks everybody Have a great week and we'll see you next time